Welcome to New Books and Poetry. I'm your host, John Eversall, and today I am delighted to have on the show the poet Matt Pennock, author of Sudden Dog, Alice James Books, 2012. Like all strong poetry, I understood the poems in Sudden Dog before I knew their meaning. The voice we encounter in Sudden Dog is a moody one, to say the least. We find a poet who at times seems to believe the whole human project is stupid, and I mean all of it. While at other times, we encounter a speaker so desperate for something authentic that he claws violently inside and straight through the visible world, attempting to uncover just one thing that can't be reduced to a physical event, something invisible in each of us that is too bittersweet to stop looking for. But most surprising, after the poet's cantankerous and difficult spirit stops to rest, we encounter a speaker of such surprising and provocative tenderness that it made me realize that these poems are not complaints of victimization, but doubtful prayers of a man who refuses to relinquish his dignity to a sick world. Mark Wonderlook says, Matt Pennock's Son and Dog is a troubling, moving, and memorable book that returns strangely and via estrangement to love. Matt Pennock, welcome to New Books and Poetry. Wow, thank you, John, for that that great introduction. That's um, that's nice. Thank you. Hey, man, you're welcome. I'm so happy you're here. Um, before we jump into Sun Dog, I definitely want to back things up and uh, kind of get a sense of your biography. Uh, can you tell us where you were born and raised and uh, kind of what that was all about? Well, I was, uh, I'm actually a military brat. I was born on Eglin Air Force Base in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. And then from there, it was just a long history of places in which uh, my family and I moved to. Um, uh, do you want the list? Yeah, let's have the list. I mean, uh, it sounds very transient. So, uh, yeah, take, take us around the, take us around the map. We moved from, uh, Fort Walton Beach to, I believe, uh, I might be wrong. My parents could correct me if I am. Uh, but, uh, we moved to Denver, Colorado, then to Long Island, New York, then to Nashua, New Hampshire, then to Tucson, Arizona, then overseas to Germany, uh, and in the Rhineland for a while, and then back to Florida again in Tampa, the Tampa area. McDill Air Force Base, and then from there we moved up to um, Northern Virginia, which is where my dad finally retired um, from the uh, military, and I went to high school in Northern Virginia, and I went to college at the University of Virginia uh, in Charlottesville. All right, so to me that's incredibly fascinating that you had to travel around so much. Uh, Looking back on those travels, uh, in what ways uh, does that kind of jumping around the globe, do you think, uh, affected you in any way? Well, I mean, I'm always thinking about this. I'm, I'm really not, I'm not sure if I've ever figured it out. I feel like when you are in a military family, you either become one of two things. You either retreat into a shell and just sort of cut yourself off from the world, or you become sort of a, you know, a social dynamo, and you talk to everybody you, you you ever meet. Uh, I think I'm somewhere in between. I think that I've become somewhat of a 
strange blend of an introvert and extrovert. Whereas I'm very good at, you know, talking to people I just meet, but really all I want to be is in my room by myself, not talking to anyone. And did you, uh, did you have any siblings growing up or are you only child? Yeah, I, had, uh, I had an older brother, an older brother. Yeah. How much older is he? He's two years older than me. And, uh, I don't know. What was that experience like for him? You think, uh, you know, kind of compared to yours? Well, uh, growing up, we definitely went in opposite directions. He was the one who was very introverted. Like, he looked at every place we moved and said, you know, I'm not going to see these people in a couple of years, so I don't need to make friends with them. And he would shut down, and he basically was very, you know, into, you know, his own inner world. And I, on the other hand, took the opposite path, where every place I went, I would try to make new friends, and I would try to be the life of the party, and I became very extroverted. What's strange about that is I think as we've grown older, my brother has become much more extroverted and I've become much more introverted. So, uh, I don't know. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting because, uh, the way you describe your experience and your kind of response to that lifestyle, uh, and we'll get to this mo- a little later, but I kind of see that energy reflected in your poems. So, uh, that really makes, I don't know, that makes a lot of sense to me. So you end up in Virginia. Eventually, your father finally uh, uh, does the family a favor and stops moving around. Uh, hey, we got to go to a lot of cool places. That's true. I'm not trying to. Uh, <laughs> I'm not trying to uh, hold your dad accountable to any sort of uh, weird thing. But uh, tell me about Virginia. Did uh, how old were you when you got there? Uh, I was in the eighth grade when I first moved to Virginia. So I spent the eighth grade all the way through high school because my dad retired when I was in the tenth grade. Mm-hmm. So um, I stayed through late middle school all the way through high school in northern Virginia outside Washington, D.C. And then uh, after that, I moved to Charlottesville when I went to UVA. So really, I claim Virginia as my home. It's the first place that I ever really felt like I had a home. So uh, that's when people ask me where I'm from. When I give the short answer, I say Virginia. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Did you have any uh, any sort of literary aspirations at all in high school or when did uh, your kind of contact with poetry really begin in earnest? Uh, well, that's that's interesting because um, I guess I, my my mother my mother is an English teacher and an educator and a writer herself, and she likes to say that you know she always knew that I was going to be a writer because, or, or even she even says she goes so far as says she always knew I was going to be a poet. Wow. Um, because she says that even when I was a small child, I used to just memorize you know, children's rhymes and walk around and saying them over and over and over and over again. Mm. And, um, yeah, I mean, she, I I apparently memorized the Jabberwocky when I was like in the fourth grade or something Mm -hmm. like that. And and so she says that she always knew I was going to be a writer. And yeah, when I was in high school, I was always one of those kids who, you know, wrote poems. Mm -hmm. I wasn't, you know, an introverted, you know, high school kid at all. Right. I always secretly wrote my poems, and when I went to uh, college, I signed up for beginning poetry writing on my first day and just sort of knew I wanted to write poems. So, I mean, I, I feel like it's something that was just sort of like, it was in me, you know? Yeah, I totally understand. Yeah, it's interesting uh, that it maybe it starts in, in childhood, that that kind of just kinship with language, and uh, that it shows you, and uh, you just kind of, cognitively felt at home in language. I guess that's true with, well, most, with most writers, maybe. I think that with poetry, it's uh, a lot of it has to do, I think, with the kinship to music. You mm-hmm. know, it's like 
I always loved music, and my parents used to say that I just danced and danced and loved music and would sing along to the songs and memorize the lyrics, you know, when I was a child. And I think it, it's it's really about sound for me. And um, uh, I don't know why I gravitated towards poetry as opposed to the actual art of practicing music, but yeah. it has a lot to do with it, you know. I think that's a I think that's a great point. Yeah, I mean, just looking back myself, that. The formative years of my life, I mean, I kind of look back on particular albums or particular musicians as being right up there as influential as certain books I read. So I think that's a, that's an excellent point. So tell me about your, uh, your encounter as an undergrad with, uh, creative writing and what was your experience and how did you grow as a poet there? Oh, oh, I felt really lucky. As an undergrad, I was, um, blessed to go to UVA. I mean, when I was there, Lisa Raspar, who is an amazing poet and an amazing person mm-hmm. in her own right, I can't do nothing but shout her out. You know, she created the undergraduate poetry writing program at UVA when I was there. And I was the um, second class to enter, but the first class to go through for the full term, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, we got to work with Charles Wright and Rita Dove and things that people don't usually get to, people that, you know, you don't get to work with unless you're, you know, a graduate student. We sure. got it was undergraduates, and we were really lucky. I mean, I still am lucky to count Charles Wright and Rhea Doves as people that I can, like, you know, email and talk to. You know, they're, they're, they're amazing. Yeah, it's pretty incredible that those relationships uh, last for so long. And then you went off, uh, was it a no-brainer to enter the MFA program at Columbia? Well, you know, I, um, uh, I you know, at UVA we had an undergraduate creative writing program, and I kind of knew at that point that I wanted to keep doing this, and I had a, a little bit of difficulty getting into MFA programs. You know, I, uh, my first year out, uh, right out of graduating, I got rejected by like 10 or 11 programs. Mm-hmm. And then um, the second year, and then that was, I guess, before I had done my undergraduate thesis, so I did a lot more work. And then after that, yeah, I mean, I looked at Columbia, and I liked the people who were there, and um, I, uh, I applied, and they thankfully let me in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you think the MFA program, uh, like, I don't know, I hate to almost go there, but, you know, the fact is, that's where a lot of poets are writing, and so I'm wondering, in retrospect, you, what do you uh, kind of think I about... I say that uh, I got really lucky with my MFA program. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of what MFA programs have to do with the, what I recommend to other students, what they should, you know take on debt to go do an MFA, Mm -hmm. I probably wouldn't. But my experience at Columbia uh, was very positive. And I think that a lot of that has to do with the fact that I got lucky. Um, Mm -hmm. The people that I went to class with, the people who were in my cohort, um, were extremely wonderful people. And they were were also creative, and they were also, you know, not like me. Mm -hmm. And... um, I had an amazing time, and I'm still friends with almost everyone I went to school with. So I think that it's – it's uh, and, and actually, uh, out of that program uh, generated a workshop that I'm still in today. So I would actually say that um, if it weren't for Columbia, I probably wouldn't have the book that I have today. Uh, wow. I think that Columbia is very important to me. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. Um, can you can you see a significant change in your poetry from, I don't know, can you pinpoint oh. anything from, like, when you first entered there and then took off? Yeah, no, I mean, I really do have a big shift in my poetry. Uh, it's not like it's monumental, like I really changed who I was. Right. Um, there was a huge difference between undergraduate and graduate for me. 
I mean, I took, I obviously, well, I was forced to take a couple years off. Right. So, um, I, uh, I continued writing during that time. And then when I got to, to Columbia, you know, I, I was exposed to a whole new different level of writing, you know, and I had people who were not so much interested in, you know, um, how do I put this? You know, uh, uh, when I was an undergrad, you know, people were very interested in like, you know, encouraging me and making sure that I wrote, you know, uh, 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 what I believed in. When right. I got to graduate school, it was much more, it was much more rigorous, actually. It was much more rigorous. I mean, like, if I wrote something that was bad, people were going to tell me. Right. Right. I think, yeah, I want to unpack that just a tiny bit. Um, that the undergraduate experiences, uh, it seemed like the, the, what was valued there or what one would advocate in the creative writing space is, uh, that let's create a community of a nurturing community where you have kind of that, that space to kind of express oneself and kind of just organically go in whatever direction where maybe the graduate program already recognizes your gifts, already recognizes your direction and goes, hey, why don't we try to hone it, calibrate it, and kind of move you in a particular direction that we might see that you might not see. Um, is that kind of what you're saying? That's kind of what I'm saying. I mean, it's not that it wasn't tried to do, like in my undergraduate program. Like I can remember vividly Charles Wright coming and putting on – the first sentence he wrote on the board in his class was, you know, many are called, few are chosen, you know, pretty much telling all of us who were in his class that, you know, you guys aren't going to be poets. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, and 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 um, uh, in looking at that and saying, you know, well, I looked at that immediately and said, well, I'm one of the few, of course, because I'm, I'm, I'm an <laughs> asshole. But, <you> know, <laughs> but uh, uh, but but yeah, when I got to Columbia, it was already assumed that you were, you know, called, and now it was going to be whether or not you were going to be chosen. Right. So then it was much more about rigor and much more about how to you know, make your writing, I don't know how to say this, uh, how to make your writing. Struggle with it, Matt. Struggle. I want to hear this. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. <laughs> writing toxic, you know, poison, yes. you know, uh, something that will actually ap- uh, apply where you're not just doing what you want to do. We're not just pouring your own heart out onto the page, but you're actually making something that can be universal or, 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 applicable to other people. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So as you're moving your way, you know, you're kind of on your way out of Columbia, you've had this experience, your your growth as a poet is kind of been probably exponential from the moment you walked into undergrad. Now you're leaving graduate school and, you know, you're kind of the natural, the natural trajectory is the idea of putting together a manuscript, which is kind of bringing us you know, a little bit closer to your first book, Sudden Dog. Can you begin to talk about the genesis of this book and the and where these poems came from, how the poems evolved? And, uh, yeah, yeah, start yeah, there. Obviously, Sudden Dog was born out of my graduate thesis. Mm-hmm. But, um, and I started, you know, working on that while I was in Columbia. And a lot, some of the poems that are in the book are still from Columbia. But I would say the majority of the book is not from Columbia. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, it's weird because it went incrementally. 
Like I would start, I wrote a whole manuscript while I was at Columbia and I, I did really, you know, I had great feedback from my professors there, you know, Lucy Brock Broido. And then when I had my thesis readers, they were like, you know, Timothy Donnelly. And I had a, a lovely time there and they liked my work. But I, I, I always felt like there was something missing. You know, mm-hmm. like it wasn't quite there yet. Like I had a lot of disparate poems and they may have together made a manuscript, but they weren't necessarily a book. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think I started sending it out maybe three or four years after I uh, was done with Columbia. Uh-huh. And then there were, hit a period of time where I, I had some success, you know, like I was getting finalists, semi-finalists and, 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 and notes from editors telling me that like they really liked my voice and they were like, I was doing, mm-hmm. but there came a point where I actually, uh, God, I can't remember the year, maybe it's 2009, 2010, mm-hmm. where all of a sudden, like I hit another gear where I was writing poems that were different from what I was writing before, and I realized then that this is what I should be writing. Yeah, you discovered kind of that group. Those are are long-line poems in the manuscript, actually. Yes. Let me ask you, when you kind of, that thing clicked, you're like, you kind of hit that stride where you're like, now I'm kind of writing, oh, I see, I'm writing these poems. Could you see parallels going on in your personal life where, you know, you were kind of growing as a person simultaneously during these creative uh, shifts. Like, could you, was something changing in you as your poetry changed? You know, I don't know if anything, like, monumental happened. It's just, you know, things come with age. You know, you grow up. You know, you grow up and you grow up and you grow up. Yeah. uh, I don't really think that anything major happened. It was just that I got older and I saw things in a much more complex way, you know? My brain developed, you know? And you were probably writing a lot, so I think just the act of writing a lot. Yeah, like I, said, I, was, I was really lucky, you know? Like, I was able to retain, you know, a couple of really great poets from my uh, graduate experience that I used to get to workshop with, and we could work together, and we could uh, talk to each other. And so I wasn't, I wasn't working in a vacuum, which is some of the problems that, you know, people run into. Yeah, definitely. Uh, tell me about... Tell me about how the Southern Dog kind of got into the hands of Alice James' books. Oh, well, uh, well, I won a contest. I mean, I submitted it to the Canaris Gensler Award, mm-hmm. and um, I won. <laughs> so, yeah. Go me. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's back up for a second, because I always think it's fascinating. I uh, Talking to poets, especially about their first books, um, the the journey of uh, paved with rejections and to finally get a publisher to embrace it, to champion it, to advocate for it. By the time that happens, uh, what's your relationship with that manuscript? Well, yeah, that's, that's actually a good question. I mean, at that point in time, I was ready to just kick it to the curb. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, most of the poems that were in that manuscript, I could not look at again. You know, I really <laughs> couldn't look at them. I mean, uh, the poem that has become, you know, the one that people publish and, and have anthologized at this point, you know, uh, Beneath the Arctic Flow, mm-hmm. I wrote that when I was a, a thesis student at Columbia. And um, at the point where it got published, I couldn't even look at it anymore, you know. I was so sick and tired of reading it. I was so sick and tired of, you know, seeing that poem. But I knew it was a good poem. Uh, what really happened for me was that I knew that I had good work, 
and I knew that I had stuff that I, I should honor, but I hit another level in things that I was writing that mm-hmm. I wanted to include. And so what I ended up doing was I ended up going sort of like, it's hard to explain. I ended up hitting a point where I, I, I got this inspiration and I started writing all these poems and I ended up writing about a third of the book um, well after everything else. I mean, most of the book, I mean, I'd say about two thirds of the book is during the period of time, you know, in my second year of Columbia and right afterwards. Mm-hmm. And then I suddenly hit a point where I wrote like 20 or 30 pages of it uh, very fast. Wow. Like two or three months. And then I shoved it into the manuscript and I said, these are the things that are going to get me over the top. Mm-hmm. These are the poems that are going to make this book publishable mm-hmm. because not only are they good, but they actually make the other ones look better. You know, I they think that's give, a great way to put it. Yeah. yeah they, they, they give like perspective on my earlier work, you know, and I would say that actually some of the earlier poems are better poems, mm-hmm. but the, the later ones gave those earlier poems perspective in the, Con, uh, in the context of a manuscript. I think that is an ex, that is an excellent explanation of how I think a lot of poets, when they, they know, like you said, they know they have these poems that are good, but they've kind of been emotionally severed from them. They kind of look at them almost with a strange objectivity, but knowing that they're quality, and I think you used the right word that you need to still honor them, that, yeah, you might be sick of reading them, uh, but they are your little children that you need to honor and get yeah, out to the world. My, my little children. I was ready to see them go away, but you know, they were, they, I knew they were good, so I had to keep them in. Exactly. And let me ask you about your experience. So you you get uh, Alice James books to accept this manuscript, which is to yeah, me such a which is a great honor. I think when when one holds uh, Alice James books in their hands, I mean it is just of incredible quality. And no, they make uh, beautiful books. They make beautiful books, John. They really do. And uh, so I wonder if you could tell me about your experience working with them. Oh, oh, well, yeah, totally. I mean, it's interesting because Alice James obviously is a collective, you know, and they're, mm-hmm. I mean, it, I guess it's probably, I guess there's other collectives out there, but I don't really know of them besides Alice James. Mm-hmm. You know, they've been around for 40 years now. We just celebrated our 40th anniversary. Mm-hmm. And um, it really is started in Cambridge, Massachusetts as a group of poets deciding that there weren't enough women poets. And so they decided to start publishing themselves. And out of that grew a, a fantastic press. I mean, it really is um, an amazing press that still has a bent towards, you know, uh, towards, um, you know, feminist poetry, but also I think recognizes all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And I'm really proud to be part of uh, part of um Part of their, their group, you know, I mean, when I, I actually, when I, when I, um, they have two major contests. They have the Canaris Gensler, mm-hmm. uh, which is where if you win, you join the editorial board and they had the Beatrice Holly, which if you win, you know, you don't have to do anything. I actually applied only to the KG because I wanted to be part of the board and I wanted to learn, you know, how that system worked. And, um, I've, I've really received nothing but just, a great, great education and time from from understanding how they work their stuff and how um, uh, 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 it, it keeps on going from year to year. It's a it, it's hard to describe, you know, in in a, in a in an interview like this. But it's like you get a group of poets together, and you would think they would just fight with each other and not mm-hmm. be able to publish anything, but they do a great job, and we it's it's really great. I, I really enjoy being a part of that organization. 
Yeah, so I mean, uh, on on like kind of just a pragmatic physical level, what kind of input uh, did you have in just the the physical aspect of the book, the physical production of it? Was there any, or what was exactly uh, real quick your role in that? Oh, when I like my book personally, yeah. Or, um, Wait, is that pretty hands off for you, or do they no, kind no, of? No. We actually one of the great things about Alice James is as a as a writer, you have a lot of input on how your book is designed. Exactly. Yeah. What comes through? Yeah. So, like, I mean, oh man, yeah. I, it was. Uh, I was lucky, you know. I mean, we obviously go through editorial processes for me, which was great because, like, when I first um, sent that manuscript off, Alice James was the first place I sent it, probably because of how the deadlines came out. But yeah. like, after I wrote all those long line poems and shoved them into my manuscript. I didn't reorder or I didn't, you know, do anything to my manuscript to make them fit. Right. I just sent it. And I just said, <laughs> fuck it. If it, if it. if it turns out okay, it turns out okay. Right. And I won, you know, like, and I was like, okay, well, I was right. But, you know, but uh, afterwards I was just saying to myself, please let me reorder this. Please let me work on this. Right. And luckily we do. We do a, uh, um, uh, we assign a, a writer who's already been published, Alice James, to the writer and they work with them, and we, we reorder or we edit it. Whatever needs to be done, we do. And so there is an editorial process. And then there's also, I actually got, like, you know, a lot of input on the creative aspect of how the book looked, you know, which I know doesn't happen in a lot of places. Yeah, that's what I was curious about, yeah. Oh, yeah, well, I can tell you that, like, they asked me for, like, cover art, you know, like, <laughs> that's I did and I had nothing. I'm like, how do you cover our sudden dog without making a picture of a dog, you know? Right. <laughs> and obviously nobody wants that. But we went through it, me and the editors, and we just, I mean, this is personal to me. Usually they accept, you know, ideas from the writers. But for me, like, I just, I went through like 40 or 50 different images and nothing worked. So yeah. finally, we just turned it over to the book designer yeah. and Mary Austin Speaker, who is fantastic. And she did an amazing job making a very beautiful book. You know, so I got it in my hands right now, and it is ambiguous and disturbing and pleasing to the eye all at the same time, like soft, too. Uh, it's really a beautiful book. Um, you know what? Speaking of Sudden Dog, I would love to... Uh, to kind of crack it open, and I would love to hear a few poems and we can chat about them. Are you ready to do that? Yeah, I can do that. I would love to start off with the first poem, uh, Forgive the Hyena Its Crimes. Um, before you start, though, I think it's interesting that kind of first impression a poet, a poet makes with, with his or her first poem that appears in a book, and... Uh, you made quite a first impression, so if you could uh, go ahead and read that. If you want to comment on it, please do, and then uh, read it whenever you're ready, Matt. You want me to read it first, or you want me to comment on it? Uh, hold on, let me flip a coin. Uh, let's read I'm it gonna first. I'm going to read it first. I'll, 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 I'll decide for you. I'm going to read it first, and we can talk about it. All right, sounds good. All right. Forgive the hyena its crimes. Each concussion or possible concussion between car or bus or taxi or pedestrian or horse causes the eyes to cross and everyone triples, as if three men wore the same suit at a wedding. Perhaps 
I expected too much from you, but I hoped an admission of weakness would make me appear vulnerable, thus more attractive. Some injured rifle bird, plumage still aquamarine and on display. The sad hyenas rue the level of misunderstanding they face. They beg for someone to hear the pain in those merciless cackles, to see remorse in the blood that spatters each muzzle. They dream a caucus of zebra, buffalo, antelope, and new, where they are lauded for their antagonism of the lion and their efforts to keep the Serengeti sanitary. They awake cold and fray in a world that takes hours to recollect. There are tears in blood, blood in drool, head of dog, neck of horse, wrecked bone and quiet, tears in drool, tears in tears, blood for blood, leg of a cat rolled in cinder and mud. At times I lie on coastal rocks, long swaths of shale, blacker than the center of an eclipse, and I entirely covered in long fur of ochre, the troughs and crests and the gables of an approaching nor'easter. This must be what heaven is like, line after line of furry beasts weaved around each other like skeins of yarn, then packed in salt water. Each one eventually peeled off, cooked, then eaten, the way the past consumes more and more hours every day, until you blow open, bloomed and emboldened, unburdened of seed or season, say again, blown open, vulnerable to nothing because nothing's left, but a pure, harsh peal of your laughter shooting into the calm where it finally dissolves. Matt, thank you so much for that. That is, uh, so much jumps out at me with this poem. Is there anything you want to say about it? Oh, well, um, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know what, I have plenty to say about it. The one thing that strikes me most about this book is this kind of vigorous, uh, this, this, kind of violent... Well, if you, if you don't go mind, ahead, go ahead. I mean, uh, it, that, that poem is interesting to me because um, when I actually wrote that poem, that was the first of the long-line poems that I wrote that are in the manuscript. Yes. And it, it, it meant a lot to me. And um, when I got the book accepted and I had to reorder it, you know, my, uh, my, editor, my first editor, Laura McAuliffe, said to me, which poem do you think best represents you? And I was like, oh, it's the hyena one. <laughs> and, and, and she was like, why? And I was like, it's just the hyena one. You know, it's like, that's me. You know, mm-hmm. the hyena one. And um, I think it really has a lot to do with just, you know, a lot of my book feels like it's, or a lot of what I write just feels like it's coming from a point of view of people who are, you know, I don't know if this is even true. I mean, it's just they come from a point of view of dispossession, you know, and like I had a lot of empathy for the animal of the hyena. And I thought that it made a good, you know, uh, uh, um, totem for the rest of the manuscript. And I, and I like the idea of it being a totem 
for the rest of the poems. I think it definitely serves that. And uh, some of the lines in it where you see, like, there are tears in blood, blood and drool, head of dog, head of uh, neck of horse, wrecked bone and quiet. There is this constant kind of telescoping into physical material. And the more telescoping that goes in, the more we're exposed as a reader to the materiality of the world. And that, in this case, includes the material of the body. And it's kind of got a traumatizing effect, but it also has, it kind of reflects a ravenous searching for something. And I think it's interesting that the last stanza, that the material of the poem eventually eventually peels off into the immaterial, that that the laughter shooting into the calm where it finally dissolves. I found that often in the book where there is an encounter with the physical, and that encounter is often um, an antagonistic one, or at least a violent one, or where the physical is transformed. But it seems that the speakers in the poem, and I think I saw it in this poem, where the speaker seems to go towards the physical first, that it seems to me that's where the breadcrumbs of this search begin, and it's always just tearing layers down. And in this case, in, in this case of the poem, uh, things just kind of dissolve into nothing. And uh, I think that's something consistent I see in, in the poems. Let's go ahead and turn mm-hmm. to another one, or if you have something to say, go for right. it. This, that, this, that happens. <laughs> Let's turn to uh, Try Not to Disturb the Eels. This is another one where I think the physical is so palpable and that the physical world is always present and it's always being uh, reckoned with in ways that are often disturbing, but it, it reminds me of, you know, just kind of the image of somebody digging a hole relentlessly for infinity, that they are trying to mine something, that they are trying to get somewhere, that they are trying to capture this uh, kind of thing that is perhaps even beyond language. And and the poems always always have that sense of relentlessness, uh, relentless searching, and that the and that physical reality seems to uh, sometimes get in the way and get punished for that search. So anytime you're ready to read, uh, try not to disturb the eels. Go for okay. it. Okay, I'm ready. Try not to disturb the eels. On the docks, men finger, finger their waistbands for flesh or metal and stare hard. They wait for you to hoist yourself onto the muddy bank. For a little while, you may feel unsafe, but undeterred. Hands pinned beneath shoulders, knees sliding into wet earth. You are vulnerable. You shouldn't walk alone at night beneath the bridge to the city limits. Out of town, the service road narrows as the grasses venture farther and farther into the asphalt isthmus. Sure, the air is perfect, and the view across the river is beautiful. The city lights suspended like a fet of pixies frozen between ages of myth. But are they worth it? I have forgotten what you know, what it is to look into a man's eyes and know he means you harm, to see his shoulder cocked, 
His arm jerk, his fingers curl around each other, the sudden thrash. Do not be afraid. You must go back to the river. You must remove your shoes, your pants, your shirt. They are down there, deep in the mud, writing an alphabet of S's in the bottom. Splash loudly. They are down there. They will squirm. They will sink their pencil-tipped teeth into your calf, but step hard. They will congregate. All right. Thank you so much for that. That was fantastic. It was funny when I was reading that poem and I had my pen in hand. Uh, it's funny to, to see what one writes as they're uh, reading. And I wrote a complete indictment of the physical world. <laughs> but I, I don't know if that's entirely true, but I will go back. And I also wrote next to this poem, A Longing for the Visceral. And I think I was responding to um, the lines of a stanza. I have forgotten what you know, what it is like to look into a man's eye and know he means you harm, to see his shoulder cocked, his arm jerk, his fingers curl. You know, that there's this kind of uh, longing for the visceral, that there's an authenticity of uh, that intimacy that one seeks in the physical world, but I feel in your poems that the physical world keeps, and I keep going back to this idea of the physical, that at some point it disappoints or it does not yield what the speaker is seeking, and so it ends up getting maligned in some way or uh, it ends up going to more of a primordial state. Um do you notice that in your poems uh, that there's a particular relationship to the environments the speaker finds themselves in? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean that particular poem is it's hard to to bounce off of that because that particular poem was written about something really specific. Mm-hmm. But um, but generally speaking, yeah, I actually think that um, the real world versus the physical world versus the I guess you could say metaphysical world does really find its way into my poetry an awful lot. You know, um, I think that a lot of my poetry has a lot to do with, you know, disbelief, mm-hmm. you know, uh, approaching something that is real and not really quite being able to understand it and then trying to make sense of it, you know, so. And, be- and sorry to interrupt, I think what happens often is, when the speaker tries to make sense of the physical and try to get it to yield something palpable that the, the physical ends up getting injured or at least, I mean, do you, is it fair to characterize like there is some violence going on in your poems? Oh yeah. I would say there's a lot of violence in my poems. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that it's, it's, it's not overt violence. It's a, it's an internal violence. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's not so much actual like, you know, harm being done, but, just the violence that goes inside all of us, you know, we, you know, I mean, most of our, most of the time when we walk through lives, there's so much turmoil going on inside of our brains, inside of our, ourselves, you know, and I think that's the violence I'm interested in. You know, it's, the, it's the daily violence that happens inside of your own heart. That's what I'm, that's what I'm working with. No, that's absolutely how it comes across. It doesn't not come across as uh, egregious whatsoever. It seems definitely to be a representation of some uh, a speaker who is desperately seeking the authentic, who is somehow uh, ex- not quite accepting that certain things are a hoax, that it, 
that it still gives a benefit of the doubt to what surrounds the speaker, but at the same time, there's a, a pathology that happens when the speaker and and the physical interact. It's really it, the effect is is alarming to say the least. Um, I want to move on to the middle section of your book, and I'm going to have you just read two two parts of that. But I I I can't do it justice on the air. But the middle section of your book is generous in length, and it it presents uh. Yeah, it, it it presents a consistent speaker who seems to take on a different register almost. So I was wondering if you could just speak briefly about the middle section of the book, how it came to be into existence. And then once uh, once we chat about that, I'm going to have you read uh, uh, two poems out of that section. Well, I mean, it's, uh, it's one long poem. I mean, the days of abandonment, you know, sort of, I guess you could call it one poem or you could call it a sequence, mm-hmm. I, I, whatever you want to whatever you want to do, but it's, um, it, it really comes out of a, I mean, people usually misunderstand it. They think it's a breakup poem. Mm-hmm. And it's not a breakup poem, not at all. Um, it's written very much for a person who is very close to me and somebody who I care a lot about. Mm-hmm. And um, this poem was, you know, really, it, it started as an elegy for somebody who was still alive. Mm-hmm. And then it became sort of an exercise in how to, you know, I had a book on gemstones and their superstitious meanings. Mm-hmm. You know, so then became an, uh, uh, but what I'm basically saying is it became, it became a lot of things and uh, eventually it just turned out what it is. So. Yeah. I, I think uh, it's something to really be proud of. Um, if you could read the, the section on page 36, that would be fantastic. All right. Burnstone, 300 degrees and 92 degrees and rising. Black colophony leaching into linseed oil. Varnish the feather, the tress. Forgive Marlena for her smell, for the weakness it inspires. Want of scent litters the night with dyspepsia and wanderings of lung. We will never win, and we will never forget the damage we cause. But if there's something, but if there's such a thing as luck, perhaps we will be forgiven. Breathing seemed the right thing to do, even if it was smoke or dank, sweat-thick air of a room that is too small for two, where I envied everyone with the ability to sleep easy. Thank you, Matt. That was fantastic. Um, I immediately, when I read this section, I put brackets around, but if there is such a thing as luck, mm. perhaps we will be forgiven. And it was a moment in which the speaker really surprised me. That, John, because that's like very, that's the, the, probably the genesis of that entire section is that line, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, a lot of um, things I do generate out of one line, you know? Mm-hmm. That is the line that I chose, you know, uh, 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 for that to mean something. No, it really, it, it does the job I think you intended for it to do because it immediately, I think we, I think at least from my perspective, encountering, uh, the speaker in these poems is sometimes, you know, that this is a person who is fed up, that they're, uh, pissed off. They have, uh, some things they want to get off their chest and that, 
uh, you know, it's at times a very bleak book, and then suddenly there's poems in here that reveal somebody with tremendous kind of compassion for the human experience, and and then here to say perhaps we will be forgiven was a real shock to me to encounter the speaker even using the word forgiven, and I think what it did is it humanized the speaker in ways that I don't even think you can uh, imagine. And and what I find also about the poems and that are that there's a contradiction to your rhetoric in the poems in this way, and I think the middle section really uh, reflects this, is I would expect the when I consider the attitude of the book and that this is a person who uh, knows what they think, the speaker seems extremely interdirected, uh, doesn't seem to take cues from the outside world on what to think or believe. And I would expect the diction to be like have a rigid uh, kind of almost uh, hard edge language to it. And what I end up encountering in Sudden Dog is not this kind of uh, uh, hard edge language, but I mean, there's a lushness to your language. Uh, there's uh, there's a fauna to your language and that you don't shy away whatsoever from the adjective, which I think deepens that lushness. But at the same time, the content of the poems seems stripped down and bleak. And it is amazing balance that you've really pulled off. I think uh, what I would like to hear you do is let's stay in this middle section and go ahead and turn to page 47 and hear that piece. All right, 47. I had a cough that adored an ambush and you weren't picking up your phone. I'm not the genius I thought I was, or even avant-garde, but I'd like to think I'm good company. It's certainly uneven, the amount of thought I put into livestock, fenced and bleeding, one following the other until they're without the other. Why, Marilena, do they keep walking when walking seems the hardest thing to do? I keep staring down the alley and calling again. A crackle of static, an unintelligible voice bleeds through a megaphone and bounces from tenement to tenement. The rain is not hard, but it will cover us all. Marilena, I'm tired. Maybe tomorrow the world will get right. Maybe tomorrow I'll wake and breathe unencumbered. New air, saturated in green. Spring again. That was great, Matt. Thanks. And I think it's another example of seeing the speaker just have the confidence to uh, to show vulnerability and actually, you know, your sense of humor really comes out when, uh, when in particular, the line, the amount of thought I put into livestock actually. <laughs> It kind of freaked me out and made me laugh. I was like, oh, I'm supposed to laugh? Oh, my God, this guy, this poet's been so so serious. And he's actually uh, charming and uh, funny. And it was, I think. I like poems that are funny. I like poems that where people get to laugh. You know, they're, 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 they're good. That seems definitely, uh, yeah. I think in this world, I think we definitely need to laugh some more. And, and this kind of admission to say I'm not a genius I thought I was or even avant-garde, but I'd like to think I'm good company. That. I found that, uh, I don't know, it sounds like hyperbole to say heartbreaking, but 
that there's a humility and modesty to that that actually speaks to a great uh, ambition of self to say, you know, I just like to think I'm good company is that is uh, not uh, something easily kind of arrived at. And at the same time, there is wisdom ingrained in that very statement. So uh, you really, you really did so well with that piece. Um, let's um, move along to another one. I want us to turn to summary Wednesday on actually page eight. So we're kind of catapulting backwards towards the front of the book and, uh, uh, you can begin to read this lovely poem anytime you want. All right. Uh, Summary Wednesday. Summary Wednesday. Half the girls in this train car wear gold earrings, large and oval, bisected by their names and script. They are yours because you named them. Your Lakenya, your Morelli, your Yersenia. Excessively ornate, almost illegible, like your grandmother's cramped handwriting in a Hallmark card with loopy golden cursive relaying every detail of the rest home in Orlando, where her former pastor still resides. The year of establishment, the founder's name, what the food is like, how once someone moves in, they have no plans of ever moving again. Tomorrow, you settle on a plan for breakfast, you settle on banana. You are now hungry. It sits there on the desk in peel, nervous for inevitable disroving. Stare at banana. You sit there. It is afraid. All right, that was fantastic. I will be saying, um, I will be saying the phrase "you settle on banana" for the rest of my life to people, and I will not explain the context to them at all. That is such. It's really, this poem, you know, it comes across as, I think, more unassuming than the other poems. But in fact, I kind of latched onto it because it had kind of a shocking implication for me. Uh, the other poems, that there's a palpable rage in them. There is this fed upness. There's this, you know, the poems oftentimes are linguistically in protest, that they are uh, the content speaker, everything is just railing against kind of the sick world. And then I came across Summary Wednesday, and it, and I could totally be misreading this, Matt, but it showed me a speaker who had had the volatility to rage, uh, uh, you know, against kind of the structures uh, that are unjust all around us, that suddenly the speaker has to live like the rest of us, too. And Summary Wednesday struck me as somebody who was having a very, not mundane, but a very a very normal experience. And that it, it, I found it shocking that this almost superhero quality came out in a lot of the poems that, like, uh, wow, this is a speaker I have to, like, contend with, wrestle with, and they have a lot of feeling and a lot of thinking going on and it's intense, and the language is intense, and then I got the summary Wednesday, and it was like, this is like the speaker in between poems. That summary Wednesday is a poem in between other poems in which uh, the speaker rides trains like the rest of us, uh, has uh, basic observations about other passengers, talks about um, 
you know, the grandmother in Florida, the Hallmark card, and just kind of like breakfast. And it was another moment in which the speaker is humanized because the speaker is something to be reckoned with in the more energetic uh, kind of poems. And then you do allow these moments of seeing the speaker kind of be like the reader in many ways. And uh, you have other poems of kind of scenes of the domestic that are, um, uh, you know, near the surreal, but still domestic, like just cleaning an oven, for instance, and these quiet little moments of solitude that I think just humanize uh, the speaker when, and I always say humanize because there are moments when this speaker seems to be operating on registers that the reader has to kind of encounter and just hold on. Um, let's go ahead. Um, and well, re- John, go ahead. Give me a second. I mean, that's interesting that you say that because, you know, um, I feel like that poem is one that was very organic in its, in its composition. Mm-hmm. You know, it just, um, I wrote that poem completely in my head on a subway ride. Mm-hmm. You know, and I feel like that is very much, you know, something that, that, that doesn't happen very much anymore. You know, it's a um, uh, it's it's a poem that is very organic in its composition, and I'm glad that you 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 got that much from it because um, I feel like in a lot of ways that's what she, what she should be like. Yeah, it it didn't have the sense of a grand project, you know. That it didn't yeah, have... no, it wasn't at all. That's the thing. Like it was one of those poems where you know you feel like something hits you and you and you and you write in your head and you come mm-hmm. home right down and it just turns out to be great you know yeah and i think it i think one could look at the poem and go wow this is kind of odd compared to the more uh you know the more titanic uh, poems or the more vigorous poems but i think it fits perfectly i think it is exactly what the reader needs to encounter to be reminded that uh it just reestablishes i think a nice kinship with the reader um you know what? Uh, we're nearing um, an hour of this extraordinary conversation. I want to make sure you get a chance to uh, introduce any new work uh, to our audience. So would you like to uh, read a poem uh, that maybe you're working on and talk about uh, maybe a project or a manuscript that you're currently involved in? Yeah, I'll, I'll just do one. Um, I'll, sure. I'll read a, a what I'm working on now is actually an extended book-length manuscript about a um, – uh, you'll like this because it actually has to do with uh, Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. In the uh, Franklin Institute of Art, there is a lovely, you know, little automaton mm-hmm. called the automaton Leotomat de Mardet. And um, I have written a extended manuscript about this automaton – um, who had a very interesting, you know, um, uh, history. He started off being made probably in the turn of the 19th century, and um, uh, then he ended up in the collection of, Barna, uh, uh, of P.T. Barnum. And so I've co-opted this this little robot who is a robot who can write, like, seven poems and draw, like, 12 pictures or uh, check my numbers on, on, on things. <laughs> but but it's, uh, he does a lot of stuff. And um, I've made him into a character. And uh, what I'm writing is a, is a manuscript where he um, is finding his way towards, you know, he's become a, a real person. 
and he's finding his way up the, the northeast coast to meet his beloved, who he met in the uh, Civil War era. I feel like I should say some more, but I'm not going to. Okay, no, I, I'm just, like, uh, sitting here utterly fascinated by what you're talking about. And uh, so, yeah, I'd love to hear a poem. Laramat uh, scales Mount Washington. Near the summit, the gales begin to slash from every cardinal point. Snowflakes whip in unnatural directions, unclear whether they fall from sky or spring from the, from the earth. Suddenly, the clouds part above, and she is there. Too cold for real, boys, but I am warm because she is close. From the highest rock, I stretch my remaining arm until the metal joint buckles. But my hand closes on nothing but snowflakes. They sit on my palm without even the courtesy of melt. Night mountain, lonely peak surrounded by unseeable valleys. No closer. She is no closer. Perhaps up there there is not our world, but another where we can speak nor touch. A world behind glass, like my exhibit back home. Perhaps the last thought echoes into the ether where it remains, a repeated gesture of impeccable grace, a perfect grand jeté. Matt, thank you so much. I think, again, I'm seeing something emerge again in your poems, is uh, this kind of dynamic between the material and the immaterial. And it's really, it's a lovely thing, I think, to explore. And I can't wait to read uh, more of your poems. And when this manuscript... Uh, uh, blesses us with his presence eventually I hope you can come back to new books and poetry and discuss it with us thanks John 